Hey, everybody, welcome to the Rooftop Podcast. And uh, this is another one of our episodes uh, around Afghanistan. We are very, very, very blessed to have with us a really, really cool guest, uh, a gentleman that has become a, a really good friend of mine and um, who, who we've already been through a lot together. And I just thought it would be awesome to have him on the show today because the question um, that I wanted to pose to all of you is how far will you go to honor a promise? How far will you go to honor a commitment that you made to somebody? And uh, our guest today embodies the right answer to that question. And that's why I, uh, I titled this podcast episode, The Art and Science of Being Unreasonable. Because sometimes we have to be unreasonable to honor a promise. Sometimes we have to do the things that are beyond the norm. Sometimes we have to do the things that are, um, frankly, that make other people feel uncomfortable in this modern uh, materialistic society that we live in to honor a promise. And our veterans are certainly showing us that right now, the way that they are continuing to, to connect and be lifelines for their Afghan partners. But I also uh, brought Shabir on because this gentleman has, has really, really demonstrated this in every aspect of his life. Um, let me tell you a little bit about how I met Shabir. Um, I did an interview on the Military Times with uh, Howard Altman. And Howard, at the end of the interview, he said, hey, I've got a guy I want you to meet. And at the time, now, this was when everything was really, really underway. The, the airport had just fallen. Um, and he said, I've got somebody I really want you to meet. Uh, and uh, I said, okay, yeah. He, I told him we'd, we were gonna be in DC the next week planning with Task Force Pineapple. He said, well, maybe if you get some time, you can just, you can just give him a call. And uh, you know, at that time I was getting, no kidding, like hundreds of calls a week to try to help different people get out, which was just overwhelming, you know? Um, but give me a second here, everybody. There we go. But um, there was something about what Howard told me and there was something about Shabir even not having met him that I, I knew I needed to get back to him. So I, I sent him a text in the blind and, and he was in DC and, uh, and he, and he was he texted back and said, yeah, I'll be there. I would love to come meet you. Um, and, 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 and when I met him and I heard his story, um, I was just blown away. Um, I was, uh, I knew immediately that pineapple was going to lean in and find a way to help him even in any way that we could. Uh, to honor a promise that he had made. So with that kind of set up there, uh, I want to welcome Shabir Aminzada to the show. Shabir, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good to have you here, man. You're Tell us where you're coming to us from. Uh, right now I'm in Doha, Qatar. Um, I'm in an undisclosed location. I'm actually uh, thankfully with my family right now. And so far everything's nice. going pretty blessing. Very cool, man. Um, Tell us, I'd like to just start so everybody kind of gets a sense of uh, your journey and your family's journey, Shabir. Why don't we start with the story you told me um, about how you came to the U.S. and your backstory and uh, maybe just take it about to um, when, uh, right before you got married. Definitely. Um, uh, our backstory is uh, a little bit crazy. Um, my mother was pregnant. My father was uh, was with her, and at the time he was a tailor, and he was also studying to become a, a lawyer or possibly a judge. Uh, and he was also writing. He was a journalist, and he was 
writing about women's rights. And this was all happening while the Taliban were in power in Afghanistan. Because of that, our family escaped. We, uh, we went to Peshawar and we lived there for several years and life caught up with him. Uh, he was actually killed in front of my mother and I. My mother was eight months pregnant at the time and it had a huge toll on her. Uh, after that, we, we immediately went back to Afghanistan. My mother gave birth to my little baby sister and it, it still wasn't safe for us there. So we ended up having to go back to Pakistan even after everything that had happened. Eventually, you know, everything did work out in our favor. We were able to work with a few separate groups who helped us as refugees and we made it into the States. Uh, my mother, she's, she's a strong woman. She's actually the strongest woman I've ever met in my life. Uh, she refused to go with just myself and my sister because she was also taking care of and working with my grandmother on my father's side and my aunt on my father's side. So she, she wouldn't go alone. You know, they had already approved for her my sister and I, just three of us to go. And she said, no, I'm not leaving these two women who have no means to fend for themselves. I'm not leaving them here. So she basically kind of forced their hand and got them to, to get them out as well. So the five of us, we came to the States and we didn't really have anything. Uh, you know, my mom, she was a single mom and she just, she had that drive in her and she just had, she did whatever she could and whatever she had to, to make it work. She worked up to three jobs at a time just to put food on the table and you know, she was a role model for me. She gave me an example and showed me how people should be. She showed me what it meant to be not only just a, a man, but a, a human being. You have to have that compassion and, and that drive to do whatever it takes to get to where you need to be. Uh, and that's how we ended up in the States. And I grew up there. Uh, we, I went to a, a nice school. I went to Rowan Hall St. Mark's in Salt Lake City. Uh, you know, when we first got there as refugees, that's where we ended up was in Salt Lake. While there, we had so much help from the community. The LDS Church helped us a ton. We had a lot of other friends. After 9-11, my mother, she got involved with a wonderful human being named Ann Milliken, who was at the time working under a pen name, working with NPR. And uh, she gave a few interviews there. And Ann, she's, she's like a second mother to us now. Uh, and her husband, John, is incredible. They've helped us every step of the way since then. They helped us get into that incredible school I went to. Uh, to get a great education, to be able to, to do what we wanted to with our lives. And they were really there for us. And that was just one more instance of, you know, someone showing us that humanity, something that really meant something to us. It, it showed us what humans could do for each other because they were strangers. They had no reason to help us, but now they're family. They, they had absolutely no reason to help us and they did everything they possibly could. And in the same regard, we had other friends, other Afghans, um, Guli and Tor, they're really good friends of ours. Uh, to, to me, they're like my grandfather, and my grandmother, and they're like my mom's adopted mother and father. When we were there in the U.S., they, we had arrived as refugees and we were staying at the Econo Lodge for a few days. They showed up out of the blue and said, hey, we heard there were some Afghans here. We wanted to help you. So they brought us food. They brought us clothes. And ever since then, we, should, we see them probably three, four times a week. We see them as often as we can and we love them to death. And That's again, awesome, man. I, I, I just want to jump in there real quick because there's so many... Um, you know, refugees who are coming over now from Afghanistan um, who are, you know, in in that same boat. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you right now, because I get this question a lot. People ask, you know, what 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 can I do, you know, at my level, at a community level for, you know, to, to support the, the, the Af our Afghan families who have been through so much to include, like, you know, I, I think it's important to point out too, Shabir, your father was killed by the Taliban right in front of you. 
So, I mean, and it's not, it's not unreasonable to say that so many of these other families coming over have experienced similar atrocities, horror, and trauma. Um, what were you feeling when you came over um, with that in the rearview mirror? What was it like coming to this new country that you didn't understand? I was, I was very young. Um, I hadn't yet turned five, but, um, you know, my earliest memories are from when I was about two and a half from when this actually happened. Um, it, it was shocking. You know, the reason I have some of these memories is because of how important they were and what had actually yeah. happened. That's actually that night. I, there's parts of it where I remembered, you know, picture of every detail, parts of it. And it, there, there are things that affected us in really it's almost immeasurable to to kind of get a feel for how they've affected us but for me personally the one thing that i've taken away from from what happened with my father was that he taught me what it meant to be a father what it meant to be a husband you know he put himself on the line he risked his own life he actually died to protect us and so yeah. i've always in the back of my head that hey if my father was able to do that for me it's not fair of me to not put myself up to the same standard because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah, that's going to come into play in a few minutes, in fact, uh, as we get through this. But um, so what would you see? I mean, you know, when, when Americans are looking at <clears throat> the Afghan families that are coming over here after going through all they've been through, and we get and I get this question, what, what can I do at a community level? It sounds like some of the things that were done for you, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's only so much the government can actually do. Uh, and a lot of the confusion yeah. is that a lot of people think that the government's going to take care of everything A to Z, and it's just not true. Realistically, 95% of everything that, that can happen for these people coming into the country is all going to come from the community, whether that just be local Afghans or anyone in general. You know, for us, it, it, part of it was the Afghans there that were, that were ready to help. But a huge part of it, like I said, was the LDS church. They were ready to jump in. We weren't LDS. We're not even Christian. We're, we're Muslims. But they jumped in and they helped where they could. Uh, it's just that idea where if you see people in need, you can jump in and help. Whether if you have a business, you know, you might have job opportunities for some people. Yeah. If you understand yeah. that there's some translators that are looking for opportunities, you know, they've worked with, with ex-military or even active military. Some of these people, they have really, really hard lines and they have really good morals and they can actually work. They're ready to work. They're very, um, uh, I would say, you know, I almost want to say rigorous because they'll take any challenge that comes their way. They're ready to put the the hard work in where it's needed. They're ready to provide for their families, and a biggest part is going to be making sure that they find suitable jobs, jobs that they can actually create incomes to provide for that family, to find housing. Yeah. And some, it might be as simple as you know, showing them where some of the local stores are. The, the store system, you know, the shopping system in the U.S. is so different than it is in Afghanistan. You know, you're not going to a giant market full of only one type of item to find those specific items. You, you know, it's, it might be as simple as showing them how to navigate through Walmart or how to find specific products that they might be looking for, how to find yeah. care for children, showing them the school system, how, you know, how to get their kids enrolled. And there are things that average people can kind of jump in and help with. And you don't have to go large scale. You don't have to go find 500 people to help. You can just say, Hey, look, here's one family and I can help them show them almost how to get. Like, almost like what you do to welcome somebody to your community. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it sometimes sometimes I think I get tickled because we overthink this so much and and it, it becomes so complex and and everything you've talked about what I love is it really does it speaks right to the rooftop leadership approach of local connections uh, and bridging across gaps and 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 just and 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 building a relationship uh, before you know any transaction and and so what I would say to people that are um, watching or listening to this is if you, and I've had a bunch of people reach out asking how they can help on the resettlement side and, and we need it. Like, uh, um, like Shabir said, you know, the government's only going to do so much. And, uh, I think, uh, what we saw inside Afghanistan is a pretty good indicator of how much that'll be. Um, I don't suspect it'll be a whole lot more here and it's really up to the American people. It's up to our communities to do that part. And if you are interested in helping out, reach out to uh, taskforcepineapple.org. Um, and because that's something that we're really going to be working with, with, with leaders like Shabir and others to, to find ways, uh, whether you have employment or whether you would like to just welcome a family or you have a family living in your community, you know, this is, uh, this is our opportunity, uh, to honor that promise on this side of the pond. And it's just as important in many ways as, as, as helping them get out, uh, because it doesn't do any good if they come over here and have a nightmare experience. Um, and. That's really powerful, man. So you, um, you. Let's let's pick up with. Um, you met this girl. Yeah, um, I actually met her uh, when I was younger too. It's, okay. It's actually a little bit of a funnier story. Um, uh, she lived in her family. They lived in Pakistan while her father was also working for the U.S. government as well, and so they were there temporarily. And. You know, we would go back to visit. And so when we were little kids, we went back for the wedding of one of my aunts. And, you know, we used to have fun. We were all kids and we'd hang out. And my aunt, we were walking down the aisle and I was, you know, I was the, uh, the ring bearer. I was the ring boy. And she ended up being the flower girl. And so my family always jokes and says, you guys have already walked down the aisle before as kids. <laughs> um, and so we've got these videos and pictures and it's, it was always just cute. And we always thought it was, it was funny. And, you know, I, I, I met her and then later on in life, I, her name, tell her name, Nabila. And cool. Keep going. it's just, it was something crazy. Something just clicked. And I said, Hey, you know, this is who I want to be with. And I pursued it. Um, it was actually a little bit of a funny story. So when we proposed, I was actually at the time in Afghanistan and it was, it was kind of insane because my mother was there and we had just gotten some Indian visas to go to India from Afghanistan. Uh, my sister had just gotten engaged and I had called my mom and I said, Hey, come home. You know, I, I need to, I need to talk to you. And she, you know, being similar to me, a little bit hard headed, she continued forward and still got the visas and booked some airline tickets for us to, to go to India in the next few days. And she got home and I was like, Hey, so uh, we need to cancel that because there's this girl and I want to, you know, I want to see if we can pursue this. And that's kind of where it just kicked off from. And we canceled our tickets to India. We, we had the visas. We never used those ones. And uh, we sort of pursued it. And everything kind of blossomed from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's always You guys funny. got married. Did you get married in Afghanistan? No. Uh, we got married a couple years later. Um, a few years after that, you know, I, I, there was a few threats. And we weren't going to go back to Afghanistan. I actually flew her family out, um, her, her, her brother, her mother and her father. So the four of them, and then her other brother from the UK also joined us. And I also had my mother and my uncle that I had flown out. Uh, and we all went to Saudi Arabia. We went for Umrah towards the end of Ramadan and we were there for about a month. And 
you know, for us, Mecca is the holiest place on the planet. You have the Kaaba there as Muslims. And we were fortunate enough to actually have our vows said right in front of the Kaaba, um, which, you know, for us, we, we, we loved it. It was, it was a destination wedding of sorts. And Absolutely. it was an incredible, one of the best experiences of our life. And uh, unfortunately, because it was out of, uh, out of my country and out of her country, we weren't able to get the birth uh, the marriage certificate from there, which we, we got later on from Afghanistan, but it was still one but of the best. But that's, that's kind of where the, that's where the challenge started, right? Because you're an, you're an American citizen. Uh, Nabila is an Afghan citizen. You get married in Saudi Arabia, so you can't get the marriage certificate from there. So you had to get the marriage certificate from Afghanistan. Is that so right? We, we ended up applying uh, for her, your fiance case. And, um, you know, because for us, after we'd already gotten married, we couldn't spend too much time apart. Every few months, we'd go on trips. So a few months later, we went to India. Uh, and, you know, I have family in India, and we were able to have some fun there. And then after that, I took her to Dubai during COVID. Uh, we were there for about five and a half months. While we were there, I, I had already applied for her. And because we couldn't get that marriage certificate, I applied for a fiance visa, uh, which typically would take about a year. And the trouble kind of started, um, you know, when our funds kind of started to get low, you know, Dubai's pretty expensive. Um, yeah. I kind of cut the cord and said, okay, you know, what? I'll just go with you to Afghanistan. And that way I can do whatever I can to help you guys be as safe as possible there too. So I, I went with her to Afghanistan and while we were there and I was about to actually head back to the US and I was just planning that she would be able to come in the next couple months, we found out that she was pregnant. Um, and that kind of clicked something else in our heads where we had to redo part of the process. I had to go and, uh, you know, the, the process there to get your birth certificate, to get your marriage certificate, everything like that in, in Afghanistan is kind of crazy. You know, yeah. it might take a couple of days in the US, over there it takes a couple months. But, um, you know, just being as hard-headed as I am, I got it done and I got it taken care of, got everything we needed, got it over to my lawyer, and then we restarted the case as, as a I-130, as a spouse versus fiancé. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't really put any setbacks into it. We were still on track and everything was going fine. And it, it, that's kind of where everything else started from, was just finding out that she was pregnant. Yeah, and then, so you went back, and, and unfortunately, as this application process for her to come over is underway, and I'm and I'm assuming her dad is a, a a special immigrant visa, having worked for the U.S., is also doing the same. Things start to unravel in Afghanistan, and by the time we get to the point where the airfield is the only way out, how many, how far along is your wife at this point? Uh, she was very far along. Um, you know, like thirty six weeks or something like that, right? Or thirty four weeks when it oh, yeah, thirty. 30 when it first started yeah and we said hey we need to we need to get a move on on this um and that's when i had actually you know been able to get back from dubai so i, I traveled quite a bit um and prior to it all happening we were super excited because her, her father they had received their letter for their interview supposed to happen at the end of august that never you know that never came to fruition it was supposed to happen on the 29th of august it never happened because of everything that went down and with her, we received a letter with her approval as well, waiting on the NBC. So we were as excited as could be. You know, we were having fun. We were celebrating, saying, hey, you know what? This is great. It's a blessing. You guys are going to be able to make it out. And everything kind of just hit us like a Mack truck. Um, and when, once it all happened on the second day, you know, I got her and the family going. And 
I'd reached out to the Air Force and um, reached out to a few other contacts and reached out everywhere I could in order to try and get them evacuated. I got papers for them. I got everything that they needed. Uh, we got emails from Kabul ACS um, saying, hey, have them be at this gate at this time and we'll get them out from there. And that kind of sent them down a whole nother journey. Um, which, that which that journey I want to I talk about, Shabir, because, you know, you're an American citizen. This is your wife. She's, you know, almost full-term pregnancy. Um, her dad is basically SIV approved. Um, so they're moving as a unit. You're not there. Um, and, you know, the, the situation at the Kabul International Airport was chaos, man. There were tens of thousands of people. Talk a little bit about that experience. I mean, she's going through this like, you know, about to deliver a child. Um, what's going on? Uh, you know, in our, in our, in, at least in my mind, everything else kind of went blank. And I had, I, you know, I had my uh, narrow vision. I had my blinders on and I was looking dead ahead to saying, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, I was creating maps for them. Um, I, I sent over a few of those screenshots for you. And I had, I had a lot more of those. I was creating out maps, laying out different paths for them to take to get to where they needed to be at specific times to try and get out of there. Uh, when they got there, you know, I told them, you're supposed to be there, you know, at this time, I want you there six hours early because of how long it takes to actually get to where you need to be. And typically you'd be able to drive up to most of those access points. And that wasn't the case. You'd be walking through crowds of thousands. And at the, at, in the meantime, everyone's pushing, everyone's shoving because everyone's trying to get out. Everyone is desperate at that point. And right. for me, just, I had to have those blinders on because I couldn't think about anything else. You know, I had to block out the thoughts of what may or may not happen. Um, I actually have three other people that we personally know as a family that actually had miscarriages, all because they were trying to get out and evacuate. So three other women had miscarriages for the exact same reason. And I was fortunate enough to the point where she had her brother and her sister with her and both of their spouses and then her mother and father. So they were able to kind of shield her to move through these crowds as best as they possibly could. And that still, at most times, was not enough. Um, you know, it got crazy to the to one point where her little niece, two and a half years old, they're they're up by the Baron Hotel, and Taliban rip her out of her father's arms. They start beating her father. They start beating uh, my my wife's brother, my brother-in-law. They're beating both of them. This little girl's here. Uh, one of the British soldiers took the little girl because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't stay out there and try and protect everyone else. They at least took the little girl to protect her. And then her, her mother, so my sister-in-law is out there in the middle of this tear gas, crying, screaming, trying to find her daughter. And they spent hours upon hours there trying to get their daughter back. And the Taliban wouldn't let them forward. They kept saying, no, you're lying. There is no little girl. Where are you trying to move? And they kept trying to push him back. And at the meantime, my wife is there. And my wife fainted once. My, my mother-in-law had fainted twice. And she's pregnant. This whole time, I'm on the phone with them. And then I'm also, you know, I'm on the other line calling the DOS, I'm calling the Air Force, I'm calling everyone I possibly can, I'm calling Kabul ECS, trying to figure out where this little girl is at, trying to get the little girl back with the family, because I know there's a lot of unaccompanied minors that were simply being handed over. And I didn't want that to be the case. I didn't want them to be separated from their little, their, their child. It was the most uh, insane time ever. And finally, they were able to kind of start climbing, looking over the walls. And finally, one of the soldiers was reasonable, uh, reasonable enough with the the British forces to, to let the, the mother in and they were able to get the child back and the child was happy. She was inside coloring and she was okay, but everyone else was torn apart and crying and 
everyone had fainted and you know my sister-in-law her face was peeling like crazy she just spent so much time in the tear gas and they had no protection for any of us in fact right. they had no water they had no food and there were no bathrooms my family uh they, they were there for quite some time then they kind of used the opportunity to move forward and move a little bit more forward towards the abbey gate you know right there between uh camp sullivan uh and between uh the abbey gate you have the baron hotel and they were kind of moving forward towards the abbey gate try and get out. They finally got to some of the US soldiers and I'm on the phone with them. And I'm talking to some of these Marines and I'm begging them, like I'm, I'm telling them, hey, my wife can, my wife is showing them a photo of my passport. And I'm telling them, hey, I'm a US citizen. I'm stateside. That's my wife. She's pregnant. Her son's gonna be US citizen. That's my family. They've got an SIV, please let them through. But they were under orders to only allow people with uh, green cards or US passports. And it kind of sunk down into our hearts where they weren't allowed to move forward. And they were stuck there. They were told to sit down and wait and wait and wait. In total, they waited close to about 19 hours. No food, no water. No water. 19, 19 hours. hours. And my wife was pregnant. At the end of it, I called them and I just said, hey, you need, you need to get out of there, get some food, get some water. You need to recuperate because you can't do anything. Um, and that's the moment where, you know, in my head, I just said, hey, they're only allowing U.S. citizens and green card holders, so I'm just going to get a ticket. I'm going to get myself there. Whatever it takes, I'm just going to get there and I'll get them out. So I, that night, I just went and booked my ticket. Uh, I had the next one day to just go pack up and get some gear I needed. Uh, and then I took off with just a rucksack. Uh, and my rucksack was about 60 pounds, but, you know, I got it through airport security and it was just full of everything they would need. Medical supplies, um, granola bars, protein bars. Uh, hydration packs, you know, that I would fill when I got there just so that they would have some water, have some sort of food. Um, I had some, you know, like those hernia donuts that they could sit on, just blow them up, put them on the ground. So at least they would have to see if we had to be out and, you know, if we're out outside and we just have to be there for two, three days, at least they would have something to lay their head on, something to sit on, something to help take care of them. And I got that all packed up and took off because I, I figured, hey, if, if no one else is going to do it, I'm not gonna sit here and just just pray. I'm gonna go ahead and try and get him out. And, now, uh, hey, let's let's back up there, Shabir, because I think this is really important. You had made a promise to your wife. You you and I think this. I think it's probably time to to cover that because it's it's it, it keeps popping up. And what was that promise? The promise was that I would be with her when uh, when she gave birth. I'd be there for her son. Our son would see me. She would see me and that I would get them out, whatever it took. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you've got everything packed and you're heading to the, air, you're heading to the airport and you get through, then what? And I was lucky too, because uh, there were no other flights. The, the only one available was actually going through uh, Istanbul before and that flight got canceled. So I got another flight going through India and I actually was lucky enough to have an Indian visa. At the time I had a Turkish visa, I had an Indian visa and I had a Tajikistan visa. I got all of these in preparation just to go forward with this. And I expedited them all and had it all ready to go. And I got to India and uh, I had a separate flight that I needed to get on to go to Afghanistan. And a couple hours before the flight, I get an email notification saying, hey, your flight's been canceled. But they rescheduled it for the next day. And at the time, there were flights from Fly Dubai that were going from India that were going there and were helping with the evacuation process. So I still had that hope in my mind that, hey, somehow, some way I'll be able to get on some flight to get there. 
um, hadn't entirely crumbled yet. Uh, and there were a few people that did get there through that through the same means and not specifically through India, but some of the other countries and none of it happened. And six times I got that flight canceled on me. Finally, uh, I decided that that's not going to work. And I reached out to other sources um, and tried to figure out what we could do. And I was working with the uh, Air Force team uh, from CENTCOM and I had uh, uh, an awesome major, Shannon was her name, and uh, Shannon Swank, and she helped me, and she said, hey. And, and I want to point out here that, that this major didn't really know you. You weren't there for the Not at all. She only knew me because I had been calling a thousand times. Actually, everyone there <laughs> at, the, at the headquarters where I was calling in, everyone knew me. Because uh, when, when you called in, you had to explain who you were, explain what you're calling for. Yeah. I would call and I would say my name. It didn't matter who answered. They said, oh, okay, yeah, let me get you to Shannon. Everyone there knew because I was calling, you know, 50 times a day, 60 times a day and following up repeatedly. Uh, my phone yeah. bill was insane, but. Um, oh, I, I, I just want to bring this up because I don't think a lot of people have been following this, Shabir, the whole pineapple thing and the how citizens stepped in and helped. And I don't think people realize how much time was spent on the phone when all of this is falling apart, it's insane. I was awake 23 hours a day. Yep. That's only on the days when I did sleep that one hour. But of the 23 hours I was awake, I spent at least 15 hours a day on the phone. So um, your, your, your wife and, and family is at the airfield. Um, the 19 hours, you sent them back. You flew over to India. That didn't happen. You fly back home. Um, no, no, is that actually, right? <laughs> So I reached out to um, to a few different sources. Uh, the night I was flying back from India, I was actually going to Dubai. I was going to Dubai because I had another connection there who was going to help me get to Pakistan, and I was going to take the ground route and get into Afghanistan on my own. But that same night that I had my flight scheduled going from India to Dubai, I was also on another podcast. I was on the Conservative Daily podcast. Uh, Joe Waltman is actually the father of a, of a friend of mine from college, and he, he spoke with me. And we spoke about everything that was going on and, you know, kind of spoke about the reality of what's happening behind those lines and what people aren't really hearing about what's, what's really right. happening not on the media. And, and at the end of it, he said, Hey, you know, I think uh, I can help you. And he had a few military connections and was trying to get my wife out. And um, because I was on the podcast, we decided that it was at the time not going to be safe for me to get in uh, specifically through the Pakistan route because, you know, my name had appeared on a few lists and, we figured that might not be the best of ideas at that time. So I was in Dubai after this and uh, I still had my connections there and I was working to get these, the, the visa for myself and get them all to Pakistan as well and process whatever we had to from there and get them to the US. And that kind of fell apart. When the, when the route from Pakistan fell apart, that's when I flew back. And I didn't even fly back to, the, uh, to, my, to home. I flew back directly to DC. And it was all because of what I was doing with Joe Allman. Uh, he was helping with a few active military and people that were on the ground and that were evacuating people. That's what uh, sort of helped me get my wife and family over to uh, meds. I got them to Mazar Sharif and the whole plan was they were supposed to be on a, on a plane and get out of there. Yeah, so uh, let's that, stop there because at this point, the Kabul International Airport, so they waited for days to get in um, and then all of a sudden bombs goes off and the last airplane flies away and they're sitting there watching it go. Oh, and the, the major I told you about, Shannon, 
because they had no other means to get him in. And I was talking to her and I said, hey, there's these buses that are getting people into the airport. Can you help me get them on a bus? She went through every NGO list she could and she found one that was working with female doctors and connected me with them. Those guys agreed like, hey, yes, we'll get them on a manifest on one of these buses. We'll get them to the airport. That same day, they called me, the, the, the following day they called me and said, hey, we got them approved. The manifest is good to go. Be ready in the next couple hours. We're gonna get them into the airport. I'm still in India at the time and I was excited. I was happy and I said, finally, we're gonna get them out. And hours, a couple hours later, bomb went off. And that was it. Jeez. No flight, no, no buses no more. Everything was so shut now, So now we're looking at, now you're, 36 week or 35 week pregnant wife is going to have to move overland to Mazari Sharif from Kabul to Mazari Sharif through Taliban controlled country with the family to, uh, you know, a, a, a room to stay in and, and a plane that may or may not get out completely privately funded. Right. And it got a little crazier. So at the time she wasn't even with family. Uh, I was working with another, I was working with the Operation Underground Railroad, um, and my uncle was working with them too. We've got our, our uh, nonprofit in Utah working with them, and they had two female doctors that they were trying to get out, and they were going to Mez, and we got my wife scheduled with them. So we provided the transportation, got my wife and these two other females to Mazar Sharif, and then the following day, Joe Altman said, hey, you know, I'm, I, the military plane is good to go. Bring the family too. They're all going to be good to go. So the following day, the family goes. The previous day, you know, I was running pace plans on pace plans. I had multiple options. Whichever one worked, that, that's going to be what we go with. Whichever one said, hey, green light, you're good to go. That was going to be our blessing. And, you know, while I was working with Joe Altman, I was also working with multiple other organizations to try and make something happen. And so she went alone with two other women. And we had people providing the transportation, got them there. They were there for the for one day, and then the following day, her family. I got them there. Then I got them into safe houses, and they were staying in Mazar Sharif. And the first day the family got there, they were supposed to leave on that plane together. The uh, underground op uh, operation, Underground Railroad, their operation um, got infiltrated. So that same day, as they were on the road, I was receiving calls from Joe saying, "Hey, be careful! Operation Underground Railroad. They just got infiltrated, and a few of their their cars full of women that they were taking were stopped. Everyone in the car was killed." And so there I am on the phone calling our transport saying, hey, you need to stop. You need to turn around right now. You know, I, I can't have my wife be killed because that's what they're doing right now. Someone is in, within their operation knowing where people are and where they're going to be, and they're going and offing them. And so I had to, to make a few hard calls there, and they ended up going a lot later. So what would have been normally a eight to 10-hour trip took about 15, but they finally got there, and they were safe. And that's all that really mattered at the time. And then the following day when the family got there, they were supposed to head out on a military plane. Um, it was a privately funded plane, but it was going to be for, for people that have worked specifically with the military. And that it didn't happen. All those flights were grounded. Um, at which point I continuously worked with every group I possibly could. And eventually I, I get a call from uh, a gentleman named David Jacobs. And my family's still there and I'm in DC. David calls me and says, hey, um, are you Shabir? And I said, yeah. He said, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with the family? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm open to telling anyone and everyone about it, um, you know, to get as much word as I can out there to find help where I can. And he finally said, hey, you know, we've had a few people calling about this and we've had a few connections kind of reach out to us specifically 
Jessica uh, from Operation Underground Railroad, she did a lot and she spoke to him too. And uh, he said, hey, we want to help your family. We're working, you know, I'm from the Nazarene Fund and we have our, our, our flights here. And, you know, we've, we had a family that isn't able to be on this and we want to put your family on that flight instead. And I said, absolutely, let's do it. And even that, even once we got that confirmation, we had about three other days where they were ready to go. And they were told, hey, we're good. You know, we're getting the call right now, be ready. They're gonna come get you. And it's still failed. The Taliban weren't allowing the flights through or a different flight was allowed to go through and they weren't able to go. And Now, what, still- what was that like? So you're, you know, you're, you're, your wife is going to the, you know, cause the, Mas- the Masri Sharif air- airfield was probably just as crowded or, you know, and lots of challenges there. She's going there, getting on these planes by now, you know, 36 weeks or approaching 36 weeks. Um, What's she going through? What you know? What's 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 going on with her and her pregnancy at that point, and what's going through her mind? So at the time she was breaking down, and this is when I was in D.C. Um, yeah, this is when we met, I think. Yeah. So when we first met, I was staying in Chantilly, about an hour to away, depending on traffic. Uh, during the day, I was driving over and staying by, and you know, parked by the Marriott, just waiting to see if we could meet, and. All night long, I was up and on the phone. I was, you know, I had about three, four days where I actually didn't sleep at all. Um, and I was on the phone night trying to get this to work. And we weren't having people go to the airport. There were other means of getting them out and that's what we were waiting on. Um, and, you know, the means of getting them out weren't disclosed until it was time to get them out. They were just told yeah. to be ready. Notice we're gonna tell you what to do and where to go and how to get there. And that was it. Um, that's all that we were told and that, you know, just based on that sliver of hope, we were just waiting up all night and I'm on the phone, you know, and David, he was been, he was incredible because I wouldn't expect him to be up all night. It's not his family. He was up all night long. He was up as, as long as I was. And he was on the phone to me. He was te- messaging me, texting me, calling me, and he was doing so much. It was, you know, for me to see that for someone that's, you know, it's not his family. It's not, yeah. it's not him but he was still treating it as if it's personal that meant a lot and we kept going at it and i'm thankful to him and everything that uh, you know the nazarene fund and uh glenn beck and all these guys everything that they've done was incredible but uh we finally get the call and saying hey be ready to go and we were up all night long all night long and i'm messaging david and i'm messaging them and i'm messaging back and forth and i'm i'm found other contacts too and so um, if, if, if you guys can tell by now, uh, I, I have a craziness about me where I'll find a contact if I need to. And I found contacts in the uh, Mez airport and I was confirming everything with them saying, hey, how many flights are supposed to go out today? And they would, you know, they couldn't, they would, they would tell me enough information to an extent. Originally, there was supposed to be two flights out. My family was on, um, was on flight two. It was Mercury one flight two. And they said, hey, you know, the two flights didn't go through that day. Then the, the gentleman who was a contact there, he said, hey, so the two flights didn't go through today, but now we have three scheduled for tomorrow. So I was excited and I spoke with David and he confirmed and said, okay, that, okay, if those are the rumors going around, I mean, it is similar to what is going on. And, you know, we had that going and that third flight is actually the only one that got out that next day. The original yeah. two, the third. Well, and I, and I, want to, I want to point that out, that the, the, the calls that you did like that constantly, to, to find new options to new opportunities. I think for anybody listening or watching, you know, that was, that's what the really good shepherds did. You know, they didn't, they didn't just accept whatever the status quo was. They didn't just, you know, they were constantly looking for new options so that they could serve as the eyes and ears and, 
you know, imagine doing that for your wife, your pregnant wife, uh, and having to, 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 you know, bust through all the tension and anxiety that goes with that and the negative thoughts that are probably trying to course through your head anyway. Oh, that's one thing I spoke to Mike Adams about too. Before I headed out to Kabul, I had created a list. I had 28 plans, 28 plans in place. And my goal was, hey, if I can make any one of these 28 succeed, that's it. We succeeded. 27. So brings, that, that, that brings me back to my title of the art and science of being unreasonable. And, uh, you know, because that's really, that really is what it requires uh, to honor this kind of a promise. And, um, you know, it's being done every day. But I think your case, Shabir, is, is just uncanny. Now, there was a point I think you shared with me uh, quietly where your wife was really starting to wonder if it was going to happen at all. She started to break down a bit. Um, you know, uh, we had several nights back to back where she was on the phone with me crying three, four, five hours at a time. And it was just unrelentless. She couldn't stop herself. And she kept saying things like, I, you know, I don't think you're ever going to see your son. I don't think you're ever going to see me again. You know, I think this is going to be it for us. Uh, she broke down. It was, yeah. um, and that was incredible because we got connected with uh, Operation Angel Wing through you guys and and Mary from Operation Angel Wing, she was able to speak with my wife and, you know, help her out as best as she could and help kind of calm her down again. And, you know, even no matter how much we would try and bring her back down, it, it was just that one aspect in her head that it, it couldn't be calmed down. You know, it, it was always, it was that huge amount of fear in the back of her head just saying, hey, you're never going to see your husband again. Your son, even if he's born, he's never going to see his father. Uh, if he's born. You know, just all these other aspects. And then she's also worrying about her father. The same day when uh, I had her separate from her family to go to Mez alone, her father fainted and was crying. And she witnessed this right before she got into a car with two strangers to go to, you know, go right through Taliban to potentially maybe be able to get out. And her yeah. father had just, you know, fainted and we had to get him to the hospital and get him taken, uh, you know, get him taken care of and make sure he was fine. And all of this was all happening at once. And it was a complete mental breakdown for her. Uh, yeah. It was too much to go through. And that's kind of where, for me, I was able to kind of, for the most part, lock everything down and just focus. Because if you can't do that, then if you let, if you let the, the breakdown kind of take over you, you can't move forward. You're, you're and just I think locked. it's, no, it's true. And, and, I, and I also want to point out that while you're doing that, you're, you're, you're lodging, your food, they're lodging, they're, you're paying for everything. It was uh, very expensive, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Yeah, and and uh, so the the but talk us through now. Let's let's bring it to um, the opportunity to get out of the country and, and what happened from there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I finally get a call saying, "Hey, we're good to go," and I'm up all night and I'm telling them where to go and how to move, and they uh, they were taken out by by the means of a bus. Uh, to get into the airport and I'm up with them the entire time talking them through telling them different points to go to and communicating and being kind of like a focal point between my brother-in-law and my wife with uh, David and I'm also at the same time working with connections on the ground to see what's what's happening from that side too and and that's why like you said earlier you know a lot of people don't understand how much I had to talk about it wasn't like hey one phone call like oh yeah you guys are good to go bye it wasn't like that um, it's using both I had two phones with me and it's using both of those calling different people, talking to them at once and talking and speaking to maybe 12 different people in that night. And each one of them, I'm having to talk through with them for hours on end. 
either guiding them, directing them, looking at live locations, telling them how to move and what directions to go in, sending them a pinpoint, telling them to go here, making sure that there's money on different cards, making sure that their SIM cards are all loaded up, uh, making sure that my brother-in-law, his card will work, my, my wife's will work. So I'm having them use at least minimum two phones to, to be able to get to where they need to in case if one breaks, one dies, one for some reason just doesn't have signal. They're on two separate types of SIM cards operating both at the same time. It's just- Yeah, because having, because it's important here to understand a loss of comms it's, is, it's, is that's it, game over. Yeah. And you know, if, if they had five minutes to get to a specific spot to get into that bus and they didn't get there, sorry, they're not gonna hold the whole plane yeah. for you. No. And it's not gonna work. And it, right. it just, it, it was just insane. That whole night we were up and we finally got them on the bus and I just had a huge sense of relief but then immediately I thought back in my head, like, hey, wait a minute, you've had them approved on a bus before, keep going. So I started talking again to people and communicating to get them there and they get to the airport. And they spent about 13 hours at the airport before they were able to take off, being vetted at the airport. Then they got on the plane, they flew, and I'm still talking to them. The moment that they landed, I, I was speaking to them and you know, the telecommunications here in Doha are super expensive. So if you're using a SIM card from abroad, like they were, it, they, my wife spoke to me for four minutes and it drained about 30, yeah. $40 on her SIM card for just for literally four minutes and 28 seconds. Wow. So I, I kept loading her SIM card so she could speak to me the first little while that she was here and they were getting vetted here. The whole process. So, so by this point, th this point, their wheels up, they've landed in. And now they're hot. Yeah, and one other point I want to I want to bring up at this point, uh, by by this point, a lot of people, uh, at least in our team and other teams, had got to know Shabir in the story, and they were burning phone lines up, uh, State Department, uh, military contacts over in Qatar. The whole idea was so that when you and or your family landed, there there would be medical you know medical uh, treatment waiting for your wife as soon as as uh, as soon as you landed. And uh, that seems like that that was the case, right? Or no? Uh, so yes and no. I was also working with Spencer Seal from uh, Mike Lee's office and uh, yeah. Megan uh, Megan Reese. She was working with me too, and they were kind of being liaisons for me too with the DOS and uh, with the White House specifically as well. And they were able to to find people that would be able to get medical attention to her. They knew exactly what flight she'd be on. They knew the name. They knew all the information, but because of how much they have to go through in terms of the vetting process when they get there, everyone's gone. It's all, it's all jumbled up at the end and they weren't able to locate them. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm, to, I'm speaking with them, speaking with them, trying to get them located, figuring out exactly where they are. Cause they're, again, they were taken from the military base and then moved off of the airfield to a camp. And so I had to figure out where they were because you know, no one was really telling us, Hey, it's this camp at this location. And so I was using uh, her GPS coordinates and I kind of did some sleuthing online and I was able to figure out what camp they were at and what part of the camp they were at. And we uh, kept working at it. And eventually uh, Ambassador Holtz got involved. Then we had some local uh, guys here. Uh, I don't really want to call them out by name. Yeah, um, no worries. But he, and he and his wife have been incredible. His wife's here too. And what's crazy is uh, they're both, they both got connections in, in Utah. Uh, his wife is also from there and uh, they're also LDS and 
they were awesome. They sent me a photo when they finally found my wife and they're like, Hey, we got her. We're going to see what we can do for her. And they were, you know, we were able to get medical attention for her, make sure that the baby's all right and kind of move forward from there. And it kind of, that's finally when it felt as if like, okay, you know what, everything is going. Um, and we got, got her medical attention, made sure that the baby was fine, made sure she was fine. Um, and those guys have been invaluable too. They kind of played a, a much bigger role. Um, once I finally came here, because while, while this all happened, I was actually back in Utah. I had left DC and I was yeah. back in at the time because um, I was primarily in DC hoping that, you know, if we got them on that military flight, they'd be able to evacuate. And at the time people in Doha were only there for maybe two, three days and then they were being moved on. Right, but, but she, got some, she got some news about the pregnancy at that point, right? Yeah, she was uh, much further along and that wasn't gonna be the case. And knowing that, hey, she's way too far along, she's up in that 37 week plus range, 38 weeks range, it just wasn't, it wasn't an option. She wasn't gonna be able to move on. You know, going on a 14 hour flight, 15 hour flight was not gonna be feasible for right. her. Right, right. So I went back to Utah to, you know, re -gear, repack my gear and get everything else I needed. Um, Cause at the time I only had two t-shirts and a pair of shorts. Uh, when I was in DC, when I was meeting you guys that day, you know, um, and here's also another part of me kind of being a little bit unreasonable. I had went and got clothes there. And then for like two, three days, I just sat in my rental car parked out in front of the Marriott waiting. Cause I know you, you guys were super busy. You guys had a lot going on. And I was just parked out in front of the Marriott waiting to see when we would be able to meet. And while I'm parked in my car, I'm on the phone the entire time, messaging people, calling people, trying to get whatever I could done. I had nothing with me. So I didn't even have my laptop. I had my iPad. Um, yeah. I didn't have and, you know, I figured I would need some of my gear. Um, so I went back to Utah, got some clothes, got my laptop and got a few other things. And um, I was in Utah when all of it kind of finally succeeded and it happened. And then I, I reached out to you guys and I reached out to Mike, I reached out to yourself and I said, hey, you know what, they're there, I'm gonna head out. And I had to get everything I needed in line to be able to be here because Qatar is not the easiest country to go to right now. Uh, although you yeah. don't need a visa, they have a lot of other restrictions. Um, yeah. And it, it was interesting that, you know, that was the first time that we faced a situation where we were trying as hard as we could to get Afghan allies out of that region. And we were actually looking at flying you back in um, <laughs> so that so that you could keep a promise. Uh, everyone I tell here, you know, about it, they kind of get shocked. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> you, you came in from there? Why are you here? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've dealt with quite a few steps after, but um, I, I told Mike, like, hey, I've got this flight booked. And he said, no, 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 see if you can cancel it. We've got guys that they've all, they've been waiting to jump at this opportunity to help you. And I said, okay. Um, and that's when some of these other guys, I, I believe it's uh, Josh Owen and a few others, they kind of jumped in and they were able to help. And uh, they're all with Task Force Pineapple. And they got my flight, they got my hotel room. And I got here and, you know, I was, Pleasantly surprised. I got through the airport. My my Etheraz, it's a it's a weird pass system that they have here with COVID. That's a huge restriction that's been making it very difficult yeah. to travel in Qatar. Because uh, for the most part, regardless of where you're coming from, you get here, it's going to be yellow, and then you have to go into one of their mandated quarantine facilities, and you'll be there for at least 14 days before they let you leave. And that's only if your Etheraz turns green, um, and it's not cheap. So I was lucky to get everything lined up properly and get my documents in line and get everything submitted so that I would have my throws ready to go before I even took off. Um, and again, it's just kind of, again, it goes back to that being unreasonable part where 
I said, hey, I'm going to be there regardless. I'm going to get myself there because she's there. I went and took care of all of it ahead of time instead of waiting to, to get here and then start yeah. going. So I got out of the airport and even the guys at the airport security, they were kind of shocked. They're like, where are you from? I said, U.S. But they, I showed them my draws and it was green. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess you can go then. And so it just worked out for me and got to the hotel and I was trying to get myself to these guys. And that's where the uh, the soldier I mentioned earlier, uh, he kind of came back into play and he was working with the ambassador and we were trying to find out what I could do to be with the family. And this is where uh, Qatar really helped us too. So uh, one of the members of the, the family, the Althani family, the ruling family, they helped us out a lot. They helped us with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of the Interior. And we got my family moved off of Campus Leah, which is where everyone is, to these other locations. And that's actually one of the, uh, you, you can find even YouTube videos on it. It's the FIFA World Cup locations. It's where they're going to be housing people for the World Cup. But right now they're using them as camps and they're these large villas. So right now it's like a three-story, five, six-bedroom villa that we're staying in with everything that we could think of already here, ready to go. So they were able that's to transfer. Amazing. And, you know, it's all because that soldier was able to work with the ambassador and they were able to work together and they've personally were able to connect with uh Jasa Maldani, who's an incredible guy who's been helping us out a lot and I showed up here with uh with them I returned my rental car and I had the uh the wife of the soldier kind of bring me here and we checked in at the gate they you know received us and we got inside and they brought me here and I was able to surprise my family and you know they didn't know I was already here waiting for them I got here about an hour before they did and they were just super excited, super happy to see us. And, and Jossum, you know, he didn't have to do any of this. He's part of the royal family. They have no reason to do any of what they're doing. But he actually came personally and brought the family himself. Uh, and he's here personally, too. He has no, you know, the people that are here, they're volunteers. They're, uh, it, what they're doing is insane. Um, these homes that they've given everyone, it's incredible. The food that they're providing everyone, three meals a day. And the food, I mean, it's it's a lot of food. Uh, I almost every home here has to throw out so much because so much more is coming in but they're providing food um, and they have a supermarket at the supermarket whatever you need you can go in and walk in and get it's they'll, they'll call it a supermarket. they have one side where you can get like you know your necessities your toiletries one side where there's uh, you know some chips some snacks for the kids some sodas some water some juice and then upstairs they have an area where there's clothes that are donated so you can get wow. clothing and all of That's this is all awesome. And I think that's a pervasive, I think that's a pervasive theme through all of this that I've seen, Shabir, is like if we listen to your story, um, at every step of the way were, you know, people just stepping in and doing the right thing, looking around saying, okay, nobody else is coming um, and helping. And, and granted, you did an amazing job as a as a shepherd. Um, there was one other little minor event that happened once you got in the apartment. Um, there was see, what was it? Oh yeah. We were back to your wife being pregnant. What, where, where do we stand on that right now? So my wife is, uh, she was pregnant and, um, you know, we, we were getting her checked up and the one kind of disconnect here is with the hospital system. Cause we have a clinic and, and we're, you know, staying right in front of it and they've been able to check up on her and they would send her to the hospital because they, they can't take care of her here at the clinic. It's very small and doesn't have anything that they would need. So they'd send her out to the hospital here in Doha and, uh, that's where they were able to take a look at her. But because she doesn't have a primary doctor, the one part of that really sucks is they would they have to get her there, 
and they only take the refugees with, you know, you have to get the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs approval. They'll take you in one of their vehicles or in an ambulance, and you'd have a police escort the entire time. So they'll take you to the hospital. They'll get you there. And uh, whatever it, you were assigned to do, whatever your plan was for, they'll get that taken care of, then they'll bring you back. The only problem is if, if, you know, five minutes later they decide, okay, you just did an echocardiogram, but you also need an ultrasound, they would have to call the clinic. You would have to come back here. Then you'd have to go back from here, back to the hospital, to another wing to do that. And that happened a couple of times. Um, but the, finally, the doctor here at the clinic, he was super incredible and said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to send you there and just work with this doctor that's there. And we're going to get everything taken care of. And at the same time, I was dealing with a few issues because I had gone into the clinic to help with my wife. The clinic's technically registered as a quarantine facility. So once my name was put in, uh, my name, my etheroz went yellow. And so I went out to go get uh, some ultrasound records because I'm actually the only person that, that's actually here at this camp that's allowed to come and go. And I went to the hospital to get her records and everywhere you enter here, if you enter a mall, a hospital, anywhere, they have to show them your etheroz on your phone, it has to be green. So I, I you know, assuming it's gonna be green, I just showed them and all of a sudden I get 15 security guards around me and they're saying, hey, we need, to, we need to call the police. And I said, what for? And I look at my phone, it's yellow. And you know, I, I kind of had to be unreasonable with them. And instead of just leaving, I, I kind of argued with some of the security and I finally said, hey, here's my wife's name, here's her HC number, please just go get her records and I'll be on my way. One of them was you know, nice enough to actually go do that for me. He went in, got the records, brought it out to me and I left. Um, and then I spent the next several days on the phone every single day trying to get that taken care of because it should have gone green. We did another uh, COVID test here and I thought that might've been what turned to yellow, but it was actually the clinic. So I was telling them, hey, you know, my, my COVID test result, were, they, it was negative. Why is this not green yet? And so I reached out to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I reached out to Johnson. I reached out to the 109 number that they have here, which is their the government line that you can call. And we finally got taken care of and sorted out. But while I was getting that sorted out, that doctor that, you know, we, we went and took my wife to, I was with her that first night and you're not, the men are not allowed into the women's side of the hospital, into the gyno, gynecological side of the, the hospital. And so I was waiting outside and, you know, I'm waiting outside for six, seven hours out in the heat and it is hot. <laughs> um, and so I'm just waiting outside and, you know, finally they tell me, hey, your wife is actually uh, further, uh, she's pretty far along. We're actually going to see if, you know, inducing tonight is going to be the best option. So I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, if there's any reason to do that, we'll go ahead and do it. So I came back and I, you know, I get back here at like one in the morning and I get, um, I get to the, to the gate. I just took an Uber back and all of a sudden now I have cops surrounding me here. <laughs> I had to explain to them how I was allowed to be here because typically visitors aren't allowed to come in the middle of the night. And I had explained that I'm not a visitor. I'm actually staying here. And it was actually someone from the Royal family that let me be here and gave me that permission. Um, and the rules sort of changed. So then because of everything that had happened, I had to deal with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Interior, which had a little bit of a disconnect. So the next two days, I was not allowed to leave the compound. Wow. Um, I, I wasn't allowed to leave at all. And so I'm stuck here. My wife's at the hospital and they, and you know, she's about to give birth. They ended up actually not inducing because, you know, God works in mysterious ways and everything sort of happened naturally for us. And now my son's being born and I get a phone call here and my son's, you know, coming to the world and I assume, okay, I'll be okay. To, I'll be okay to leave for this. So I grab my stuff and head out. And that's when the ministry of foreign affairs finally feels like, Hey, you know, right now we're actually not able to let you leave. So the first day my son's born, I can't leave at all. And the second day, 
still can't go and I'm just trying to figure it all out. And, uh, towards the middle of that second day, I go over and start working with uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And some of those guys there, I mean, the guys I've met here, some of them have the biggest hearts I've ever, I've, of anyone I've ever met in my life. Uh, so this this gentleman named Mussen at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he says, hey, I'm going to make this work for you. Here's a form and here's what we're going to do. Whenever you're going to leave, I need you to fill out this form and have Jocelyn's name on the bottom. You won't have to sign it or anything else. Just fill this out and I need you to send it to this specific email. And whenever you leave, now security can't tell you anything. You're allowed to leave. You just have to submit this every day. And so it, to me, it was kind of funny because now I'm submitting and giving myself permission to come and go. But it's it's a sort of legal loophole that he was able to work yeah. for me. Um, and he personally was able to work it for me and get it sent to me because that again, that's something that's yeah. unheard of. Yeah, um, that's amazing. It's a formula. So, not- <laughs> yeah, and so so tell us about the baby. The baby's awesome. I got to the hospital and oh my god, he's he's just so incredible. He doesn't. He's not. He's not a big crier. He yeah. only cries. Really, really needs some milk, and that's it. Um, and what's then, his name? Zane. Say again. Zane. Z a i n. What a what a beautiful name. Yeah. Well, the name actually uh, it plays a pretty important part too. My name is Shabir, and the Prophet Muhammad he actually nicknamed his his uh, his grandchildren Hassan and Hussein. He nicknamed them Shabir and Shabayat. So my name is Shabir. That's what my father named me. We thought my little sister was going to be a boy, so my father wanted to name her Shabayat. So be Shabir and Shabayat, she ended up being a female. My mom kept the same name and just made her Shabayda. So she has a very unique name that no one else has. And uh, Hussein, he had his son. His son's name was Zayn. And Zayn ended up being the fourth imam. And he actually brought out a, a generation of, of nationwide peace. So he was very well regarded in history as being a bringer of peace. And so kind of going through the names of my wife, we figured, hey, if I'm nicknamed after Hussein and his, you know, his son was named Zayn and he brought peace, it might be fitting to name our son Zayn because we're moving into an era of our life that might be a lot more peaceful. You know, wow, no that's longer- so beautiful, man. That's so beautiful. What now? How about uh, how about Nabila? How's she doing? You know, she was uh, struggling, but from the day she first saw me here, because even when she was in Doha, she was still kind of upset because I wasn't able yeah, to be with. Her. Sure. When she got when she finally saw me. It, she pulled a 180. Um, it was incredible because the doctors, they were thinking, you know, that baby was going to come any day because she was having some complications. She had some issues with her blood pressure. She was under a lot of stress. From the day she saw me, everything quite literally took a 180. And it, that, then we were kind of thinking like, is this boy ever coming out? You know, um, <laughs> it was super relaxed. She was having fun. You know, she was finally able to see me after so long and able to finally have kind of peace at heart and know that, hey, everything is going to go well. And she also felt happy because, you know, I did come, I did complete the promise. I, I got to her and I told her yeah. you're not going to be, but then when she was in the hospital by herself, she kind of flipped the switch back. She was by herself alone. I'm for sure. two days. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I talked to her and I talked to talked her through it. And I was lucky enough to have already gone ahead and got a SIM card for myself and for her. So she was able to, to communicate with me from there because she had a local SIM card and, that was a huge help for her. And, you know, even from here, I was, or, you know, ordering her some food, getting her some McDonald's and some stuff sent Wonderful. over to her. And the police, they were incredible helping. The female officers that were with her, because they had to have someone with her at all times. Yeah. 
they were incredible. You know, they were they were feeding her, they were helping her get everything she needed. That's amazing. And they were fighting over who'd get to see the baby. That, that's so <laughs> but, cool. Well, so what's what's next? Oh man, what's um, next? Next is getting us to the states. So I've I've been proactive about it. Uh, for Zane, I already got him his U.S. passport, uh, which you know I told some of my contacts and I told my lawyer, and they're like, "Wow, that fast? Okay." <laughs> Um, I got it taken care of. Yeah, he's, you know, he's nine days old now and he's had his U.S. passport for two, three days already. Um, he's, he's living the life. He's got his passport ready to go. Now we're waiting on my wife. Her case is all expedited. Um, the only trouble we're running, uh, running into right now is because uh, at the embassy, everything's ready to go for her. She just has to have her COVID vaccine before she's physically allowed to do her medical exam and get her visa. Once she can get all that processed, she'll be good to go. She and I will not be going back through the camp. She'll be able to fly with me from Hamad International back to nice. uh, along with the baby. And then our family, they'll be going through the camp system. Uh, and the plan is that uh, once we're ready to go, we'll get them back in, get them flown over to the, to the States. And wherever they end up, I'll just be going and picking them up, driving them from whatever camp they're at back to Utah. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Well, you'll you'll let us you'll let us know what you need, right? Absolutely, brother. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely be letting you guys know because I'll need some help there. <laughs> All right, man. Okay. Well, we're here, and uh, I just uh, an amazing amazing story, Shabir, and and I you know I just wanted our our rooftop tribe to hear this story because I I think at such a personal level I don't think everybody fully appreciates what it takes to to shepherd a family through the chaos that you did, man. And, you know, you did it at, 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 with, with grace, you did it with courage, you did it out of love, but, you know, you also did it very well. You know, I, I, I watched you operate and, and I'm very, very proud of how you, how you handled things. Very, very proud of how your wife and, 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 and her dad and the, that family handled things. But, um, you know, I'm also very, very proud of the different people along the way who stepped up. You know, I think as you, as you listen to this story, it's, it's, to me, it kind of restores my faith in humanity, not just at an American level, but internationally, um, that I think there are still a lot of good people in this world uh, who, who believe in, in stepping in and doing the right thing. And, and your story, you know, fully illustrates that. But most of all, man, I want to thank you for being so damn unreasonable and honoring a promise uh, and showing us, the, the rest of us, what that looks like. Because... Um, we need more leaders today who honor promises like that, whether they're with their family, whether they're with their, um, their kids, or whether it's with the people you work for, or here's one, politicians to their people. Um, you've shown us what right looks like, my friend, and it's, I'm, I'm honored to call you a friend. Thank you, brother. My honor's all mine. It's been all an right. honor me along the way. Absolutely. Well, best to your family, best to Nabila. Keep us posted. We'll be looking for you guys when you get stateside. Just give me a push before you go wheels up. And uh, thank you so much for everything you've done, man. Sure, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to this special episode of the uh, Rooftop uh, Podcast. Um, and, you know, a lot of you had asked for kind of just getting some some insights into um, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the activities that are required for this kind of work. And I think Shabir... Uh, definitely embodies that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you will keep our Afghan brothers and sisters uh, in your hearts and in your minds as they make their way here and those that are already here and those 
that are still behind enemy lines right now that we're trying to help. So thanks for what you do. And uh, we'll see you on the rooftop. Mm -hmm.